you do like the feeling of power you have as a newspaper proprietor of being able to sort of formulate policies for a large number of newspapers in every state of Australia? Well, there's only one honest answer to that, of course, and that's yes. Of course one enjoys the feeling of power. The newspaper can create great controversies, stir up uh, arguments within the community, discussion, it can throw light on injustices, just as it can do the opposite. It can hide things uh, and be a great power for evil. It's not a perfect system, obviously, but can you think of a better one? Hello and welcome to episode 14 of Murdocracy, the podcast that keeps an eye on the news and influence of News Corp, the most influential media company in the Western world. I'm Cam Wilson. And I'm Sammy Shaw. Hey, Sammy, I've been thinking this week, I've been meaning to ask you, how Mm. is your campaign for Warringah going? Um, it's kind of crowded. It looks like everyone else is campaigning for Warringah <laughs> as well. I think there's more there's more candidates for Warringah right now than there are people in Warringah, um, <laughs> which is making it a little bit challenging. But, you know, I have high hopes for... I heard Gladys dropped out. And I'm assuming that's largely because she saw the strength of my um, following and just knew, you know, I'm the better candidate. And you two were both in the same kind of campaign, you know, uh, traditional, like conservative uh, uh, figures, you know, big mm-hmm, hitters. Mm-hmm. Uh, you really were vying with, with, a, way, a, for the with same... a really controversial dating history. Yes, <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And in whispers of corruption, but hey, yeah, yeah. it's neither here nor oh, yeah, there. Yeah. Oh, no, Nothing... in my case, they're not whispers, they're hollers. Yes. Uh, yeah, you two were both vying for the same vote. So I think that, mm-hmm. that certainly clears a pathway for you to, to get the norm. Well, I mean, look, I'm not saying that this is just my first stepping stone on the way to the eventual prime ministership, but uh, that's only because I don't want to jinx it by saying it. So I'm not going to say it. It's mm-hmm. for others to say, it, really, is the mm-hmm. way I feel. Yes, yes. Yep, the yep. question I, is, if you were in Warringah yep. and it was me versus Gladys, who would you vote for, Cam? Oh, uh, Sammy, of course. I work with you. I know you so well. Of course I vote for That would be Gladys. a reason not to vote for me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Sammy, you would have my vote every time. Do you have any? Do you have any like uh, big policies? Anything big changes you want to see in Warringah specifically? Um, I mean, I've never been to Warringah, so visiting it would be nice. I think. Um, I don't. I know that in Labour doesn't consider that a major criteria for pre-selection either. So I don't know what the big deal is, is with that. Um, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm really easygoing. I think the only thing that really bothers me these days is the fact that I've discovered that all hipster cafes don't serve cold water, um, and mm. ethnic cafes do, and I want to fix that. Difference. Divide, you know, mm. why is there this cold water divide between the two cultures? But other than that, I've got no other plat- uh, policy platforms, really. Oh, and, you know, if there's something like uh, electorates like Warringah Love, it's a little bit of diversity, not not mm. so much that it's, mm. uh, you know, you know, a big change, but a little bit, you know, that's that's fine. They like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, 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 I wouldn't mind being token. <laughs> hey, Sammy, we are chatting to Dr. Dennis Muir, who is a senior research fellow at the Center for Advancing Journalism mm-hmm. at the University of Melbourne today about the results of the Senate inquiry into media diversity. It had a big finding that gave a bit of a push towards a Murdoch Royal Commission. Do we have some Rob Menton? We will be discussing that with him, along with you know how this kind of stacks up against quite a lot of proposals uh, for media reform in the past couple of years. Um, but before we get on to the good stuff, the meat, I just mm-hmm. want to thank as well, we had Nathan is a new patron for us who's contributed. So thank you so much, Nathan, for helping Welcome out. Welcome on board, it does, Nathan. Really it does mean it. a lot. Yeah, mm-hmm. we really appreciate it. And if you do want to contribute to the, the running costs of this show and all that, our Patreon is at p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash murdocracy, M-U-R-D-O-C-R-A-C-Y. For our first story of News Corp News of the Week, 
The big story this week to me was about the cozy relationship between politicians and News Corp publications and how they can sometimes go wrong. I think it was last week that we discussed that politicians sometimes give exclusives to publications like News Corp. That's nothing new. But what is interesting and why I bring it up today is about how these, uh, you know, this information, these drops, these leaks, whatever you want to call them, are are told to the public, how they're sold. In particular, I've noticed that News Corp publications, their kind of in-house style guide, I think leaves a lot to be desired about how they tell their audience how they came about this information. Mm-hmm. And this can have problems as was revealed this week. So there were two big stories. The first was a story about how China allegedly hacked Queensland power stations, which were, according to the author James Morrow, the Daily Telegraph's political editor, who we cited last time as kind of being in the position of getting a very convenient, you know, kind of pro Dutton drops in the past. He wrote that they were minutes away from shutting down. There was even a front cover on the Daily Telegraph, which had this big picture of Xi Jinping like kind of looming over a power station, uh, looking kind of ominous. It is some quality uh, Adobe Photoshop, by the way. Like, it, oh, it really worth looking at, yes. It was great. Yeah, kudos to the, the graphic designers. <laughs> the only problem about this was that mm. a Russian organized crime group had actually already claimed responsibility for the attack a week before. The company CS Energy also pointed out that it was false to say that it was a state group or that they were minutes away from shutting down. So really, you know, the main crux of this article actually kind of turned out to be false. And in the way that the article is written, it's kind of sold as, you know, high, uh, you know, uh, high ranking intelligence officials told us and doesn't really give much information about where it came from, which puts them in a bit of an uncomfortable position when it turns out to be completely wrong. Mm -hmm. The second story, which was kind of similar, which is a really interesting opinion piece reported by South Australian publication in dailies, Tom Richardson. He wrote about how the South Australian government has been giving COVID health information not to all the publications, but uh, to the Adelaide advertisers, then News Corp publication. He spoke about it a bit. He wrote about how this has you know, certain ramifications during a public health crisis, particularly because I think the Adelaide advertiser as a News Corp publication is usually the only one that has a paywall up on their COVID information, mm-hmm. although they sometimes do take it down. But he also gave an information about how sometimes it goes wrong. He said last Friday, the advertiser said that the state's crisis directions committee, which is kind of bureaucratic committee that's informing how the state is dealing with, you know, COVID emergencies, would likely close the state borders for the next fortnight because of Omicron, which it had uh, uh, sourced um, before this meeting happened. But it said it was likely to happen. Except it didn't end up saying this. The chief health officer, Professor Nicholas Spurrier, ruled it out the next day. So mm-hmm. again, we had this, it was written as, it is expected that they will do this. And, you know, the implication is that they had, you know, some kind of information that turned out to be wrong. And like, you know, people, you know, read this, think it is legitimate. They they have no reason not to trust it. And it affects their lives. You know, they start to worry about, well, will I be able to go and see my family over Christmas? And it ends up being like, you know, not true. So I don't know, like, what do you think, Sammy? Do you think these articles are clear enough about how they're getting their information? Do you think it's normal that people change their minds and so sometimes predictions like this that are reported will get it wrong? Or do you think that we need to, like, I guess, have a higher standard for how we 
you know, inform the public about, uh, I guess, like sourced information like this? Well, it's been one of those big changes in news journalism overall, right? And this has been something that's kind of uh, been a story since the 70s and 80s moving into the 2000s. And uh, in America, for example, one of the big shifts in journalism happened during the time of, I believe this was the uh, the O.J. Simpson trials and everything, where it stopped becoming a thing to have independent confirmation of a story before you run it. You can wait for someone else to do the independent conversation, um, confirmation and then run the story as something that, you know, for example, if you're CNN and New York Times confirms the story, the CNN can say the New York Times has confirmed the story and, and this is what the story is. You don't have to wait for CNN reporters to do independent, independent confirmation. It was a huge shift and change in the way news was reported. Uh, if you ever saw that uh, uh, terrible TV show, The Newsroom, um, oh no, I haven't caught it. I've heard good things. I, no, no, no. Wait, I'm thinking. Of, um, I'm. Th- I don't mean the Australian show. I mean the one that it was. Um, the HBO show that was directed. Oh, oh what's yeah. it called? The newsroom. What was yeah, it? Yeah, no, um, I think I was thinking of Frontline. Sorry. Yes. No. Different altogether. Yes. Um, there was HBO series The Newsroom starring um, what's his face, uh, Jeff Daniels. It was written by Aaron Sorkin. There's an episode where they're talking about that American um, senator who got shot by an attempted assassin. And they, many news channels reported her as dead. And in this fictional newsroom, Jeff Daniels refuses to report her as dead because he goes, no, we wait for independent confirmation. We're the only station that's going to do that. And it was this wishful thinking, clearly, on the part of Aaron Sorkin that news channels did this more. If, for example, the Daily Telegraph had said, you know what? This is a story that we've received um, some source information from within the the federal government or within intelligence agencies that tell us this. However, we cannot confirm it independently. However, we're just telling you the story we've received. That's a way of framing it. But the way it is framed is this has happened. This is fact. It is indisputable. And then when it is brought into controversy or is questioned, there's no apology afterwards. And that's why there's this whole conversation around mistrust in the media. A really good example is uh, Alexandra Smith. So Alexandra Mm -hmm. Smith is right now the state political editor at the Sydney Morning Herald, Walkley Award winner. And she was questioned about why the Sydney Morning Herald has has so uncritically republished the information from Scott Morrison's office that, um, you know, Gladys Barajiklin will be running for Warringah until finally it was kind of announced that she really wouldn't be. And um, when asked about this on Twitter, she said, it was the PM pushing it, not us. We reported what he was saying. And many people have jumped on this as a very classic example of what's wrong with modern journalism, you know, as opposed to just, you're, you know, you're not PR, you're not the spokesperson, your job is to question when someone says something and uh, the and obviously it's it's a small tweet she's not betraying an entire style of journalism or anything by by tweeting this out and it's become a bigger twitter storm than it needs to be but it is telling that there is a cohort within australian journalism that is too close to power too unquestioning of power and then too eager to retweet or or republish claims made by people in power without the independent verification needed to tell whether or not it's the truth um, versus just a narrative that is required by those people in power. I think you're right. I also think that the fact that these thoughts of powerful people are reported is not inherently a bad thing. If anything, it's good to know what they're thinking because mm-hmm. that helps us understand how they're governing, how they're doing, whatever. Absolutely. The point, though, is about contextualizing it. And so, you know... If it is, you know, saying that first one about the China uh, hacking attempt, 
if it is something that has come from the office of Peter Dutton, you know, saying sources with intimate knowledge of, you know, Peter Dunn's thoughts or, or like something like that, you know, giving people enough information so that they know where it's coming from so that they can, I guess, critically analyze and be like, well, do I trust that person, their thoughts, rather than being like making it so generic that it kind of makes it, um, you know, like hard to critique. Like I, I would want to know that Peter Dunn thinks this was China's mm-hmm. um, uh, uh, like fault because when it turns out that it, it isn't, I can be like, well, now I know that I don't trust you know that judge, and I think that kind of says, well, that you know you need to really yes. wonder about that. But th- that is information, but it's about that context. And and look, I, we've picked out News Corp. That's the podcast that we're doing. Other places do it, but I do think it is um, something that I see from them a lot, which is they have you know as as the, uh, the most powerful media company in Australia, they have these relationships. And they're kind of, I guess, like the way that the company deals with these relationships, just it seems like almost like the norm across the board is to, you know, kind of err on less rather than more um, information about this, I guess, in a way to kind of protect that relationship. But the result is I think it can sometimes lead readers worse off. Well, it depends entirely, again, on the readers as well, right? So um, will the readers who are reading the Daily Telegraph, for example, ever be given the information, unless the Daily Telegraph itself publishes it, that this was you know, incorrect and that a Russian organized crime group claimed responsibility? Or will they always just continue with the narrative that, that China did this and this is Xi Jinping's whole plan? And, and you know, it, it depends entirely also on that, you know, the audience, the way the audience is, um, is provided information to. And then if you were to go up to Daily Telegraph Reader and say, actually, this is what happened, they would cons- you know, consider you as being full of misinformation because their source of information gave something different. And yeah, it's, you know, it's part of that polarization of news where, you know, you, you, depending on your politics, you pick your news brand and you stick with them. Uh, next story is that News Corp is announcing that they are hiring 30 new cadets. So hired from 400 applicants, which was actually, to my mind, actually not that many. Um, the company announced that these cadets will rotate between newsrooms. Uh, mm. It's good to see that they are hiring so many new positions. And if I don't know if people remember, but for a few years, such was the state of the Australian news industry that uh, News Corp, uh, then Fairfax, now Nine, and other places kind of all shut down their mm. cadet program. Uh, we've noticed that these have started up again with News Corps, which seems to be the biggest. Sammy, if it was your first day out of uni, you just studied journalism, you're done, would you, knowing everything about News Corp, apply for their program? Oh, absolutely. I think it's so important to work in many and varied news stations and news channels. And, and, you know, look, at the end of the day, News Corp has got resources. And if you want a good experience as a cadet with valuable resources, valuable access, you know, on the ground training, things like that. I'm sure a place like Newscope would be excellent for that. I'm, I'm, I'm a big believer in, um, you know, work for whichever newsroom you can, especially in the early years, because the training you'll get and, and the way you learn to discern your own style of journalism or judgment comes from that kind of variety of experience. Um, if you only work for the ABC or you only work for Channel 10 or the age or whoever, you'll only ever learn one style of working. And you also won't have access to many of the other resources other places have. Yeah, I think I think that's right. Um, you know, uh, I, I I wonder what it's like, for instance, working for, you know, back when Alan Jones was on Sky mm-hmm. News, if you'd want to be a producer for him, I think that's kind of 
being involved with that might make me feel a little bit worse. But that, you know, yes, yeah. but that's a different level. You know, exactly, cadet, exactly. A cadet wouldn't be having that experience yes. anyway, right? Yeah, 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 exactly. Whereas, whereas these, like you know, there are there are many great, particularly the regional papers, but even you know, what across like the major metro ones, where you don't get sucked into the cultural wars. Mm-hmm. You can kind of just you know have a great opportunity to do local journalism. Which, which is such a great opportunity. So, you know, if there are any budding journalists who are listening to this and, and do worry about the impact of, of some of the worst parts of News Corp, you know, I think you can probably rest easy knowing uh, that y- you probably won't be exposed to, to yes. that. And um, <laughs> look, if, if you want to, you can always like, you know, have a really, uh, you could be a whistleblower to us or you could have a powerful walker out if you're like told to do something you don't want to do. But really, I think, you know, it's, it's a pretty stock standard job a lot of the time. Yeah, it's, and it's not to say that, you know, any other news place you'll work in, you will not have those arguments and those ethical dilemmas oh, as yeah, well. You know, yeah. I've, I've worked in many newsrooms in Pakistan and Australia, um, or at least worked with journalists in Australia, and those ethical questions and quandaries and, and everything comes up all the time oh, yeah, in totally. different stories that you wouldn't even think sometimes. So, you know, you, it's good to be outside your comfort zone and learn how you will navigate that and also how you'll feel about certain things and where you draw your own personal lines. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Apply away, I say. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. For our next story, I wanted to update you on how friend of the pod, Alan Jones, is going. Uh, after much speculation, he announced that he is signing with himself. The veteran shot jock says he's launching a digital media show, essentially mm-hmm. like a YouTube streaming program, uh, each weekday uh, with Australian digital holdings. I had a bit of a dig around, looked into it, and I found that essentially it looks like the company is is new, a startup last month, and it appears to be run by people who have, you know, links to his known associates. So it appears to be just like a new media company that's spun up around uh, Alan Jones. What do you think of his um, move and now that he's done with News Corp? I mean... As a person who used to write a column for a, a newspaper here in Australia, and then the column was discontinued, so I had to set up a Patreon to continue writing the column to continue to get in an audience, and it's much smaller than um, the audience I used to have, but I also have a level of independence now. I think he's ripping me off. I think Alan <laughs> Jones is quite blatantly copying from the Sammy Sharp playbook, uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, and one of the things he's going to discover very, very quickly is the amount of people who watch you on YouTube and Facebook not as much as the amount of people who watch mm. you on Sky News is going to be a very niche audience of a lot of weird people. And it's, yeah, it's, um, look, I might be wrong. He could be the Alex Jones of, of Australia, finally, which has always mm. been his kind of, you know, his destiny. But, Another uh, A Jones. Yeah, exactly. But I, I think the, the back end stuff needed to make this work, I don't think he has an idea of what all is required because just the announcement itself was quite terribly done. Yeah, it was shit house. No, no, mince your words. <laughs> yeah, no, no, yeah, no. I, the, the production quality was awful. And I mean, producing these shows now is pretty accessible, more accessible than ever before. I mean, you do see people with not a whole lot of tech, uh, with mm-hmm. pretty available consumer tech, being able to produce high quality shows, you know, this podcast, I don't think is too shabby and it, mm-hmm. it, it, it's not a huge amount of tech behind it, but we didn't see that with his announcement. I don't know how it's actually going to look when he does his show from wherever he's doing it. Um, I just want to, you know, pat myself on the back because this is what I've been saying for a while, you know, yeah. when you have nowhere else to go. You go straight to the people 
Don't have to worry about advertisers. You can monetize, as you said, your weird audience. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, he could potentially, if, if it does well, make a lot of money out of it. But as you kind of point out I as well, see- he does have a lot of competition now. He competes with every other weirdo out there with a camera and microphone, yeah. which in- <laughs> including us. <laughs> um, <laughs> but particularly on his, um, on his end of the spectrum, uh, you know, I'm curious to see whether he'll indulge in his more dog whistling fringe ideas now that he doesn't have anyone essentially saying, Hey, you know, let's, let's stick kind of, you know, within the mainstream kind of perspective. Well, look, there is that whole aspect of the online, right? The more outrageous you are online, it's the same rules as television, really, but, you know, it, it even amped up. So the more outrageous you are, the more likely you are to build an audience and all the things. He does come with a built-in audience, but Huge, again, yeah. um, you know, one of the things you mentioned, which is money, I don't know how much of this is about money because it's not like Alan Jones is short on cash, I'm mm. sure. Um, I think in the end, this is a ego exercise, much like, you know, most most media-related things tend to be, which is... He's doing this because he wants to make sure that he's still out there, he's still relevant, mm. he's still got an audience, and he has, you know, he's still influential. Um, it's no different from when Mark Latham had, I think, an, a, 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 the Outsiders show. Before that, he had some mm. kind of online show as well. And and in the end, a lot of these things, it's what feeds the ego and where it goes from there. So if he finds that this isn't giving him the numbers he needs for his ego to be satiated, he'll go someplace else. Um, but it'll be an interesting experiment to watch in the meantime. Speaking of Jones, he was a notable absence at News Corp's co-chairman Lachlan Murdoch and his wife Sarah's Christmas party on Thursday night. Uh, There were quite a few uh, celeb Mm. luminaries, including Kate Ritchie, uh, Qantas boss, Alan Joyce, uh, one of the Atlassian founders, uh, and of course, the uh, News Corp royalty, so Paul Whitaker from Sky, uh, Peter Stefanovic, Chris Kenny, Paul Murray, Sherry Markson, and execs Siobhan McKenna and Michael Miller were all in, attend- at all in attendance. Sammy, what do oh. you reckon? Uh, <laughs> what do you reckon their their chit chat is at at a party like this? How much are they loving the latest season of Hard Quiz? Oh. I don't know. Like, what, <laughs> Did what they catch is... the latest murdocracy? Absolutely. I know. Yeah, of course, of course. Um, yeah. What exactly does? What's the chit chat? What is? What is drinks? You know, what's on order? What is served for dinner? I, there's every a- aspect of this that I could be obsessed with. And... Which person are we going to install as prime minister next? Yes. Oh, do you think this is like that that episode of uh, Succession? Yes. Where they spoilers. Who hasn't seen it yet? <laughs> um, uh, we're talking about the episode where uh, the the the, the uh, Roy family, who mm-hmm. the show's about, which are uh, loosely modelled after the Murdochs, uh, run a Fox News like a media company, and they go to a um, kind of a Republican uh, 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 kind of like uh, power brokers uh, event, and they decide who they want to anoint as their uh, preferred candidate for president this could be exactly the same up in um bellevue hills well it's part of the also if you look at like you know for example alan joyce is there right the Qantas boss and alan oh, yeah. joyce has been attacked many times by chris kenny by paul murray um you know they, they, so there's that aspect there there's people in these mixes who you think would be at each other's throats but clearly get along fine either they're all very polite around lachlan or they genuinely all get along behind the scenes and understand that this is all kabuki. It's all theater. Yeah, exactly. And and the thing that we've seen from News Corp time and time again is that they will even give people who they 
you know, notionally uh, supportive of a bit of a whack when they do things that mm-hmm. they don't like. And I think yes. that's, a, you know, that's them being fickle and reminding uh, you, you know, who the power, uh, who has the power and how they use it. They're not going to be loyal to you just because of who you are all of the time. Uh, mm. You are to them a what you do. And if you're doing the thing that they roughly, you know, aligns with what they want, then they'll support you. If not, they're they're very willing to, you know, uh, publish something kind of unflattering about you. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, no one better to do that than almost everyone at this dinner. So yeah, <laughs> high pressure on the chef, I guess. And now we're joined by Dr. Dennis Muller, who is a senior research fellow at the Centre of uh, for Advancing Journalism at the University of Melbourne. He's here to talk to us about the Media Diversity uh, Senate Inquiry report, which dropped this week, what it said, what it didn't say, and what it kind of means for the future of News Corp and the rest of the Australian media industry. Hi, Dennis. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you, Cam. Great to have you here. Thank Can you. Can you give us some history? I've heard, you know, a lot about media reform. It seems like there's often uh, inquiries into it. How did we end up in a place where we are right now? And, and why is it? Why does it seem like media diversity is always on the cards? Well, it's always on the cards because it's so central to the functioning of a healthy democracy. If you have too much power and too few hands, particularly where information is concerned, uh, then of course it limits the the uh, the range of views and information that will be available to voters and uh, not just the range, but the way the information is presented. So if you just have the very few voices we have, and really effectively, we have the ABC, SBS, the nine newspapers and news corporations, basically four, which is a tiny number. It's one of the most concentrated uh, media uh, markets in the democratic world. Uh, And on the question of history, there have been many royal commissions going right back to the 1950s Uh, which have attempted, they've started out attempting to look at the issues of media power, but they always shy away from it in the end, or they mostly do. Uh, They finish up, there was the Norris Inquiry in Victoria uh, in 1991. Uh, It finished up just concentrating on issues of ownership and didn't look at questions of editorial content. There was a Royal Commission back in the early 1950s, which did more or less the same thing. And then you jump forward to uh, 2011. Now, in 2011, you might remember, there was a great scandal involving the Murdoch Press in London over the phone hacking mm-hmm. by the principally the News of the World and the Sun newspapers there. And, it, and there was a, an inquiry set up in England under Lord Justice Leveson. At the same time, here, uh, Julia Gillard as Prime Minister set up uh, a kind of a parallel inquiry, really, under... Uh, the retired Judge Ray Finkelstein of the Federal Court, uh, assisted by Professor Matthew Rickardson of Deakin University, Professor of Communications there. Um, I worked as a consultant to that inquiry. And at the same time, there was another inquiry going on, a a thing called the Convergence Review, which was really not looking just at, um, at news media, but it was looking at more the sort of technological side of media convergence. Uh, Those two inquiries reported in 2012, the most significant one for our purposes is the Finkelstein inquiry, and it recommended a statutory authority uh, to act as a media regulator. It found that the existing system of media self-regulation was a failure and said there should be a statutory authority put in its place. Now, that was not picked up by the Gillard government, 
and since then nothing has happened. And then finally, um, what happened uh, with this inquiry was that initially, you might remember, um, the former Prime Minister Kevin Rudd uh, put up a petition on the Parliament House website, which attracted more than half a million signatories, calling for basically a royal commission into the Murdoch organisation. Now, that didn't actually happen. What happened was that the uh, Senate Communications and Environment Committee established a parliamentary inquiry into uh, media regulation and media, media diversity more generally. That's the report that, uh, that dropped um, on, uh, on Thursday, I think it was. So that's the history. And they make the point in their report that nothing's happened uh, in the decade since the Finkelstein inquiry and the Convergence Review reports. The only other development, uh, looking at this history, is that when the ACCC, the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission, brought down its report on the global platforms, Facebook, Google, and the rest of them, um, in 2019, I believe it was, uh, they recommended a single regulatory framework for all media, regardless of platform. So newspapers, um, radio broadcasting, television broadcasting, and online, and the global platforms should all be all fall within the one regulatory framework. Now, whilst the government has picked up uh, one of its recommendations concerning uh, the way in which uh, the big platforms uh, have been taking news for nothing and making them pay for it, they have studiously ignored recommendation six in that report, which called for this single regulatory framework. But and we do seem to be closing the barn door after the horse bolted a long, long time ago. You know, if everyone has this agreement, uh, the consensus from the majority of the population as well seems to be that media diversity is a good thing. How did we end up in a place where we have such little media diversity in the first place? Well, we have Paul Keating to thank uh, for a lot of this trouble. Uh, he did two things. Firstly, he drew all the teeth, more or less, out of the broadcasting regulator, which was then called the Broadcasting Authority, and replaced it with an outfit called the Australian Communications and Media Authority, which was designed not to be effective and hasn't been, and no successive government has done anything about that. The other thing Paul Keating did was that he enabled Rupert Murdoch, uh, who was then, uh, you know, had relatively few newspapers in Australia, to purchase a company called the Herald and Weekly Times, which owned the Herald Sun in Melbourne, the Hobart Mercury, the Brisbane Courier Mail, the Adelaide Advertiser, uh, and the Northern Territory News. He enabled Murdoch to buy all of those titles in one go. And as a consequence, Murdoch now basically has a newspaper monopoly in Brisbane, Adelaide, and Hobart. And, of course, he has the very high-selling tabloids, uh, the Daily Telegraph in Sydney and the Herald Sun in Melbourne. So it was an attempt, and Keating's on the record of saying this, it was an attempt by Keating to punish Fairfax. Uh, the Fairfax Company, of course, in those days owned the Sydney Morning Herald and the Age and the Finn Review mm -hmm. and others. And Keating regarded Fairfax as old money, irredeemably anti-Labour. And so he said, all right, well... Uh, we will allow, the Labor government of he and Bob Hawke, we will allow uh, Murdoch to purchase these all of these titles because Murdoch represents new money. 
and one of the most disastrous assumptions of in media history, he assumed that new money meant pro-labor. Well, that turned out well, didn't it? So wow, that's how we got yeah, here. What a history. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> um, jumping back to, to now, um, Dennis, did you follow much of the inquiry as it was happening? Were there any moments that jumped out to you in the hearings or out of any of the submissions that you thought were really you know, important that were, were aired? Yes, I, I followed it fairly closely. I gave evidence myself. Um, the, I think the, the very important evidence really came from Kevin Rudd and Malcolm Turnbull. I mean, here you have uh, two former prime ministers, one from either side of politics, telling their stories, their first-hand accounts of how the Murdoch media in particular had wielded intimidatory power over both of their governments, and how, in fact, it, it, and, and the, the facts prove this, that whilst they were in office, they felt unable to do anything about it. It's only since they've left office that they have felt emboldened to come out and, and tell us what was really going on. I think that the, the fact that they were two former prime ministers, uh, two men of great intelligence and experience, giving such forthright, straight-from-the-shoulder evidence about real-world effects of the of the of the Murdoch operation in Australia, I think was extremely influential, very telling, and I think has provided a very important foundation stone for the report's recommendations. So, what do you then think of the report itself? You you, you say, seem like that you quite on board with all of its recommendations, or are there any areas you think it, it's fallen short in? No, I don't think it's fallen short at all. Uh, I think people will make the assumption that because it's only got two recommendations, mm -hmm. which I'll talk about in a minute, um, and because it was conducted by a Senate inquiry, that it will just gather dust on the shelves. That might turn out to be true, but I don't think in the long run that it will. I think the significance of this report is, firstly, that it pulls together all the malign effects of news corporation on the Australian democracy. It's intimidation of governments, it's bullying of anyone who criticizes it, um, it's editorial lockstep at the diktat of Rupert Murdoch, which we saw, didn't we, recently with the, the great switch on climate change. Mm. Um, so, you know, all of a sudden, all of, the, all of the editors of the Murdoch press all overnight decide that they'll jump in the opposite direction to the way they've been... Um, basically denying climate for the last decade, and they even had identical front pages. Uh, so this, this, this editorial lockstep, and then um, finally its unhealthy anti-democratic influence on our policy. This report, in fact, states at one point that, um, that what the Murdoch press did by making this 180-degree switch on climate change was to give licence to Scott Morrison to go to the Glasgow COP26 conference mm -hmm. with a zero emissions by 2050 proposition. And, and it's a very telling word, isn't it? He was licensed. That's, that's, that is telling us something about the, the committee's view of the influence of the Murdoch press on our prime ministers and on our, on our government. So, uh, that's one significant uh, thing. The second thing is that it lays out a policy program for media reform, quite a comprehensive policy. Um, it talks about 
the importance of the public broadcasters, um, the very important question of of making sure that Australian Associated Press is funded properly, uh, if, including uh, by government funding, because that is the lifeblood of lots of regional newspapers. Australian Associated Press is a news, newswire service which just reports things dead straight and provides the great bulk of copy to a lot of regional papers that otherwise wouldn't be able to cover what was going on outside their own neighbourhood. So public broadcasting, uh, Australian Associated Press, and then it recommends uh, a judicial inquiry to basically design a, a proper regulatory framework to replace the hopeless one that we have at the moment, consisting of the, uh, the Australian Communications and Media Authority and the Australian Press Council. So I think that its significance lies in the, um, in the sort of the broad brush, big picture recommendations that it has produced. Uh, and even though this, we're not going to see any action on this, um, certainly not before the election. I mean, politicians aren't that stupid. Uh, but <laughs> some, somewhere down the track, I think this provides us with a blueprint for media reform of a kind that we have not seen in Australia, but which is now becoming urgent. Can I push back on this idea of the judicial inquiry, which I don't think I don't I haven't explained to the podcast listeners, but the, the difference between the uh, parliamentary inquiry and the judicial inquiry is that it's uh, independent. There's a judge who oversees it. You know, a judicial inquiry could you know in, in encompass a royal commission, but that's not the only kind of inquiry. The reason I'm pushing back is because we saw immediately after the report came out, um, the report was essentially co-signed by Labor and Greens members of the committee. Uh, the government's member, Andrew Bragg, came out and said, this is ridiculous. And then shortly after that, Labor's uh, communication or shadow communication spokesman or spokeswoman, I should say, came out and said, we're also not doing that even if we're elected. So what we're left with is this major you know, call for an inquiry that is, at least for the time being, assuming that nothing changes, assuming that people stick to their word, is a political dead end. We've also got this other recommendation, which you mentioned goes into and kind of sketches out. Don't you think that it's, I mean, like, I'll say that I, I was left feeling a little bit cold with that as the kind of main thrust of the report, knowing that there's no chance that it was going to happen anytime soon. Do you think that was a wise way for them to make this document? Yes, I do. I don't see there was anything else that they, they could have done if they were going to be serious about it. I think the thing about a judicial inquiry is that uh, it has power to require people to turn up and give evidence and to produce documents. Now, that's a very effective power because um, it means that corporations can't uh, can't simply sit on documents that uh, that they have but are unprepared to, to present to an inquiry because that puts them in contempt of the inquiry. So um, a properly designed um, judicial inquiry looking, I think, specifically at the question of a regulatory framework uh, is, is essential. I mean, we've had no progress since Finkelstein. I didn't agree, as a matter of fact, with Finkelstein's idea of a statutory authority. Mm. I much prefer the idea put forward by the ACCC and by Lord Leveson in England, what is called statute-based self-regulation, which means the media will 
will run and pay for the regulatory system, but they will do so under an act of parliament which dictates how they will do it. Um, so I think statute-based self-regulation as designed by Lord Leveson and proposed by the ACCC is the way to go. Um, but I think the effect of a judicial inquiry would be to, um, to have a strong evidence base for how that might work. Now, uh, you're quite right to say that the Labor Party, Michelle Rowland, their um, communications spokesman said, we're not doing this, it's not our policy. Welch, of course you would say that. I mean, they're, they're trying to win government. Do you think that any politician in their right minds leading up to an election is going to say to Australia's media, we are going to establish a fair income regulatory framework for you people, whether you like it or not? I mean, that's mm. death at the box office, isn't it? I mean, let's get real about this sort of thing. So, uh, yeah, look, I wouldn't be too uh, concerned about the short term. The The long term is um, is what I'm looking at, and it has to be long term because if, if any government's going to do this, it's going to have to be firstly well-designed, and secondly, it's going to have to be done in the first six months of their term of office. Otherwise, it, it, it'll be too close to the next election. So do we now have the situation where, depending on the outcome of the next election, we might end up with more media diversity? But, you know, if Labour wins, we win. If Labour loses, you know, Australia loses in the media diversity game. Yeah, I think that's that's pretty right, uh, Sammy. Um, I, I'm not so sure that the that the government, the that a Labor, an incoming Labour government, would regard this as a high priority. Uh, I, I would think it more likely it might be for the first six months of its second term if it gets one. Uh, there's too much else going on. I mean, there's there's the whole recovery from the pandemic. There's the whole question of continuing um, uh, inadequacies with hotel quarantine and with the vaccine rollout. There's there's too much else um, important to people. To, um, to for them to be attending to this, I think, in this first term. If they got a second term, uh, then I would be very disappointed if the, a Labor government did not do something about this very early on in its second term. Dennis, were there any other media reforms that you would like to see that weren't canvassed in this report? Um, no. I, I, I mean, in a perfect world you would reverse the Keating policies uh, that allowed Murdoch to obtain those newspapers. But that requires a law that, that forces a corporation to divest itself of its assets. And I, I mean, whilst that would be a, a kind of a dream outcome, uh, realistically, in a, in a capitalist democracy, you can't do it. So you have to tailor your expectations and your desires to what is what conforms with bigger democratic principles. So no, I didn't, uh, there was nothing, um, in my view, nothing missing from from this this report. Uh, and I wouldn't write it off just on the basis of the, uh, of, of the fact that it's only got two recommendations and, um, and discusses these issues in general terms. I think it's a sleeper. I hope it provides the basis for, um, for a media reform program going forward, um, but we're not likely to see it yield any fruit in the short term. We've been focusing so much on the report and, and, and your analysis of the report and everything. One of the things we haven't really asked you, and I'd love to hear, is what do you think personally about News Corp? I think they are a clear and present danger to the Australian democracy. 
And I say that for this reason. Firstly, they make no pretense at all at impartiality, even in their news pages. So their news pages are a melange of news reportage and commentary. And in fact, in their internal code of conduct document, they say that stories can be reported in a way that leaves the reader in no doubt as to what the paper's opinion on these things should be. That is a complete abrogation of the fundamental responsibilities of a media organisation to provide the electorate with a reliable bedrock of information on which to base their, their choices, not just at elections, but um, their, their, their choices about participation in the economy or involvement in social life generally. So the fact that they provide a skewed um, and, and biased and unreliable news service in the guise of a news service is a fraud on the Australian democracy. And at a time when disinformation and misinformation is, um, is creating immense confusion in the community, that is a, a serious abandonment of their journalistic responsibilities. And therefore, it's an abandonment of their function as what we call the fourth estate of our democracy, the 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 estate that we call well, what 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 we call the fourth estate being basically uh, the media. So for that reason, in my view, it is um, it weakens the Australian democracy. Dennis, thank you for being a uh, I guess a, a calming presence uh, about my alarm about this report because I mean as you heard I, I kind of saw it as being like you know straight away ruled out. It's good to know that you know there is something beyond the the short term kind of news cycle where that it will have hopefully a lasting legacy, hopefully shaping Australia's media landscape for the uh, for the better. So Dennis, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure, Cam. Thank you so much, Dennis. Thank you, Sammy. That was Dr. Dennis Muller, Senior Research Fellow at the Centre for Advancing Journalism with the University of Melbourne. Thank you all for listening. If you haven't already subscribed by now, what are you doing? Uh, but uh, if you need any help to find us, we're at Medocracy on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or just about anywhere. And we also have a podcast Facebook group uh, where we post stuff throughout the week. It's fun. Uh, it's Murdocracy Podcast on uh, Facebook. So check it out. Yeah, as and of course, you can also support us on our Patreon, which is patreon.com slash murdocracy. And Cam and my social medias are active as well, as we're always commenting on this stuff and keeping an eye out for any of the news stories. If you find something you think we should be talking about, let us know. We Thank love you so much. to hear from you. Yeah. Uh, thanks to Natalie Sekolovska, our producer, Kevin McLeod for theme music, the ABC for the recordings from the archive, Ruby Innes for our artwork, and as always, thanks to you, Sammy. Thank you, Cam. Thank you.